In this episode of the Dancing Paradox podcast, I spoke to Angelo DeLulo. Angelo is an author. He wrote Awake, It's Your Turn. Highly recommended. Uh, in the conversation, we spoke about the awakening process, uh, self-realization, uh, and whether there are stages, whether it's just a happening. Uh, we talked about the mechanics of the mind, emotions, thoughts, where thoughts come from, the separate sense of I, and the root of suffering, anxiety, things like that, uh, human perception, and how to cleanse that. Uh, great conversation, it was vibing. Um, Angelo's a great guy, highly suggested watching his other videos after watching this podcast. Thank you for listening, enjoy the conversation. Angelo DeLulo, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've got to say, Angelo, that uh, I don't recommend many books anymore to people. But your book is absolutely exceptional. And uh, it is one of the very few that I do suggest people pick up and read. Uh, you know, whose, whose attention has been dragged towards that this path, if you like, without being able to put it into words. There are very few books that I tend to suggest to people. And yours, uh, which is Awake, uh, it's your turn. That's that book there. Yours is one that I do suggest. It's very direct. It uh, attracts my personality, to be honest. It's also it's almost a, a demystification of everything that has sort of been mystified, um, and in my opinion, unnecessarily. So I'd just like to say, from me, thank you for demystifying a lot of this process. That That's the introduction for me. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, so, Angelo, talk to me. What is awakening and who would want it? Mm, yeah, great question. So uh, awakening, as I usually use the term, typically refers to the first significant shift in identity one experiences along this, this sort of pathless path. Um, people do use the term sometimes to refer to what I might call liberation, which is really the end of suffering and the end of any perception of a, self, a separate individual, separate self. And there are some other aspects to that. But typically in, say, Zen Buddhism, the term awakening uh, may be used in Zen as Kensho or Satori really means that first significant shift in identity, which is actually a considerable shift. It's usually quite dramatic, but it doesn't have to be dramatic. The, the key is it's a fundamental shift and it's a shift in who you take yourself to be. And that is very obvious to, to the, the person who goes through that. So um, that's a general way to describe this, to, to contrast it with other ways of perceiving uh, spiritual terminology and so forth. It may be helpful to, to point out that it's not any sort of paradigm shift. It's not a shift in the way you think about things. It's not a shift in the way you think about the world or yourself or spirituality. All of those things can happen and they're fine and they can be valuable in life and so forth. This is far more fundamental. One way of describing it would be something like you're looking through a knot hole in a fence and you're looking through that and what you see out there is a sort of scene. And that's, you could, in this analogy, you could call that your life. And the scene changes and things move and you can kind of move this way and move that way and see a little more over here and a little more over there. And then you might be able to move, you know, considerably to the side and you can see way down here and you say, oh, wow, I see something I never saw before. That's all kind of paradigm shifts. 
What I'm talking about is something pushes you out of the way and then there's something else looking through the hole. Like it wasn't you. And, and then at the same time, you're kind of looking through both sides of the hole. It, so it's a very fundamental and pervasive shift in the way you experience yourself, reality, and the way you experience experience, the way you experience perceiving itself. Hmm. Um, now, who, who wants it or who's it good for or, or, or what, uh, who would consider it valuable? That's a very intimate and personal thing. So that was one of the challenges to write this book and why I, for years, would have never considered even doing that because it's very easy to make this sound um, elitist or like only certain people get it, like spiritual people get it, or someone who's interested in spirituality or following gurus or something like that. The way our minds are hooked up, it's just very easy to, to drop it into a category like that and, and misunderstand that it's actually not about you. So, so the person this is for is someone who realizes that for me, me as who I am, how I perceive the world and how I perceive life, something feels fundamentally wrong. And I don't know what it is, but I, but I do suffer. And, and when you come to that place where it's, it's sort of a reckoning with yourself and you realize not only do I suffer, but I can sense that I'm, I'm complicit in my own suffering, the way I think about myself, the way I perceive the thoughts and beliefs I have about who I am and how I fit into the world itself causes some kind of suffering, angst, tension. And with that, there can be a sense that perhaps there's something beyond this. That, that's actually directly accessible by me here in this lifetime. And often that part of the message comes from random chance. You pick up a book, you hear the right video, and sometimes it just comes out of nowhere. So I think awakening almost picks you, but the key to it that I really wanted to point out in this book is that I know with absolute certainty, anyone can wake up, but it doesn't mean that I diagnose it. I, I recommend it as a diagnosis and cure for something you have. It's more like, if that message resonates with you, then you're good. Like if you can listen this far into this conversation and something in you is resonating, that's it. That's all you need to know. You can wake up. Now, if you hear this and you're like, ah, oh, this is nonsense. It just sounds like mumbo jumbo. It's more spiritual talk. Fine. This isn't for you. It's, there's no problem whatsoever. Go do something else you're interested in. Uh, but if, if this touches something in you, even if it's the faintest glimmer, that I don't have to suffer in this life. That's, that's who this message is for. And it, it is that you can wake up. Mm. And I think it's also, uh, we need to be conscious. I'm always conscious when I try and communicate that it isn't about being better than. It's not like, oh, I'm far better than you because of X, Y, Z. It's just like something's happened to, I've heard Jim Newman say this. It's like it happens to no one. There's nothing, nobody there actually happening to. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So what's interesting about this is the there's something built into the way humans communicate um, that it often, not always, but it often tends to be subtly competitive or the things we talk about are like what we have, what we've accomplished. And you can kind of feel threaded throughout that as something like, I don't know, a, um, a tendency to jockey for position or status or something. Now, of course, we don't always communicate this way. A lot of times we can use communication to bond and to, to build rapport and so forth. But um, it's, a, it's a pretty strong human tendency, actually, to, to think of things or see things that way. So interestingly, when you hear this communication, it can sound like that. It can sound like, oh, that's some special thing that special people have uh, that would make me special and I want to get it. But it's nothing like that. It's 
it, it, really because it's already there. It's, it is really already there. It's just that there's a certain mechanism of mind that's continuously leapfrogging over it, which is very odd, but it's not an exalted state and it doesn't make you special at all. In fact, in fact, it's quite the opposite in deep stage realization or liberation, which is kind of what Jim Newman, Jim Newman points directly to that. Tony mm. Parsons, that's their kind of style. They may not say this, but this, their style is they just point directly to that, which is fine. It can, I think it can have its downfalls, but it's also yeah. very effective in certain situations with certain people. Um, and from that place, which isn't even a place, there is no one. There's, there's, you, you see that the fundamental error in all of our processing and our impression impressions of the way things operate and the way we operate is that there was some separate entity in here, individual, trying to make itself in the world, trying to make itself do better, feel better, um, compete with other seeming individuals. When you see that's not even there, it never was there. Mm. All kinds of competition, specialness, it just goes down the drain. Mm. And you actually see things very differently from there that even the belief that I want to be special or the tendency to try to be special special in the eyes of someone you love, special in the eyes of society. All of that was actually a kind of um, a bit of a poison, actually. You're chasing, chasing something that is actually making you feel more separate. And the chasing is making you feel more separate and making you feel like a you. Now, again, there's no one doing any of this. And yet you can't just pretend it's not happening either. If you're suffering, you're suffering. So there's something to look at, something. To and, and that's the trap I fell into as well. Angelo is like, intellectually, I've got that. I've got that message. Okay, there's nobody doing anything, but I'm still there running around and trying to, I don't know, make money or, or do something in order to feel a sense of validation or whatever it is that's running the show. Yeah. Um, and I see that a lot in the so-called non-dualism type YouTube world is that mm -hmm. there is a lot of just repeating what other people are saying and a lot of intellectual knowledge about it, but you can yeah. sort of sense from the, the for yourself, for example, the people who actually it's a living reality, a living truth. Yep. So here, here's an interesting thing about that. Um, I've been meaning to make a video about this for a while because I do get so many questions from people who say, well, why do you talk about practice? Why do you talk about a process when there's no one, there's no practice, there's no process? Well, there are several reasons, but the, the, the thing I want to point out about this is that realization is so fascinating in, in so many ways. Realization is not, it's not something that happens to you. It's just unfiltered reality just as it is it's it's endlessly fascinating i could stare at the wall all day long <laughs> and it's just so fascinating because there's so much complexity depth nuance subtlety sublimity it's incredible and yet i could never say a damn thing about it really i really can't no one really can um but but the thing about it is um that's almost i'm almost referring to like to the absolute there in a sense um, there's also the rel relative perspective. Of course, we do have jobs and we have, you know, relationships and they cause challenges sometimes, right? And to try to just overlie, uh, uh, sort of blanket that perspective onto relationships, that's not going to work very well for you, right? Like, like I might joke, like, you know, Tony Parsons, I'm sure if the judge asks him, did you park your car here and you're going to pay the fine? I'm sure he doesn't go, well, there's no one to drive the car. There's no judge, yeah. there's no fine. I guarantee <laughs> you he doesn't talk like that every day, right? So, so there's a role for the relative clearly in all of our lives, right? So with the really fascinating thing about realization is the deeper it goes, the more it becomes obvious that it's not an either or thing. It's not like you either say the message in that way or, or express the message in that way that there really is no one. 
And there's then this, this, the sense of being a seeker itself is illusory and it just ties itself in knots trying to find something, you know, that is true, but it also does not exclude the truth that there's some sense of being someone moving through time. And that sense of being someone can apparently uh, alter its attention and it can move its attention to look at some specific uh, faculty in its own mind in the way it's processing that can happen. Sure. It's apparent, but everything's apparent. And that apparent happening cause it leads to the apparent happening of that self seen it again and again and again. So, so again, just drops all those out. Nothing. Sometimes it doesn't. And, and, and it can be very valuable to look at what are the components of self? What are the, 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 the tendencies that are habituated that I can actually look at and see so clearly that you actually do see they're not there. For instance, reactivity. So the sense of self stays uh, um, prominent in experience, let's say, largely through what it seems to relate to. Now, there is nothing to relate to in, in non-dual experience or with realization of non-dual, relation is gone. But if you're experiencing that sense of relation, then investigate it, right? So, so again, that sense of a, being a subject here and the world out there is kept in place by a tendency, a selfing mechanism or a relating mechanism by what it re reacts to all day long. It, you know, I'm, that's my girlfriend, my boyfriend, my job, my problem, my solution, my emotion, my awakening. But that sense of relationality actually keeps the, it sort of perpetuates it. So you can look at that and you, and you can investigate it in very precise ways and it will, it can dissolve. And the self sense of self can actually come off in layers. And I would say it probably almost always does for people, even though it's so hard to talk about the subtleties of it that I think a lot of times it just feels like it just goes away all at once, or it just kind of drops off over a short period of time. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned Tony Parsons a couple of times there. He, he sort of suggests that um, there, there is no process whatsoever. And, but when I study these people a little bit and, and look at their history, they've always, you know, uh, sat at the feet of gurus for the lack of a better term and everything. So I'm, I'm thinking to myself, Okay, I've been doing that now for a number of years, but they're saying there's no process, but they're doing what they did, what I seem to be doing at this very moment, you know, so there seems to me a slight incongruency with what's being said. Yeah, so the way I would say that is when, when now again, the speakers, you know, Tony Parsons, Jim Newman, and then mm. the like third generation, like tons of tons of them out there. Um, and, and they, I, I feel transmission from it. I yeah, feel yeah, sure. the, the direct, it's, it's, they're not speaking, but most of them, as far as I can tell, aren't really speaking from just remembering it. Although Tony very clearly does warn of, he doesn't even warn of that, but he, I've heard him comment. He said, some people can say what I say in five sentences. It doesn't mean that that's just knowledge though. Like mm. he, he says that, and he acknowledges that fact that you can learn any message and just wrote repeat it. you know repeat it mm -hmm. but um but you know giving everyone the benefit of the doubt that they're they're talking from actual experience w the way i think it's helpful for people to understand that is that is just a way of transmitting it's it's just a style of teaching and they are tr directly transmitting and i think it's a powerful way probably because the sense of doership is so strong it's not the only component of self the sense of self but it's a very strong component especially in the West, especially in a competitive contemporary society, we're so identified with doership that to cut it off at the knees again and again and again really does work for some people, I think. Mm. But for a lot of people, it, it, it gets you a certain way and then you just start getting frustrated and you're like, you know the message, you, you can do it yourself, but mm. you still there's still something in there that feels separate, that literally feels like a subject here 
to all these objects or feels like it's suffering or feels like it's struggling. Um, and then, then it's like, okay, well, you can watch more of it and that's great. Or you can do some other types of work, you know, but I a hundred percent agree with you that, that the, the ones I know personally that, that tend to speak that way, often they, it evolves the, the way they speak does evolve mm -hmm. as they um, teach more and more because you realize like everyone doesn't wake up just by hearing that. Some people do, but a lot of people, they need more nuance. They need to do some emotion work and so forth. So I have friends that have been doing this for like, you know, a handful of years and they do evolve the way their teaching styles. Not everyone does, but they tend to. So again, I don't discount that teaching style, but it, you have to understand it's a teaching style. They don't walk around talking like that all the time yeah, to their yeah, friends, yeah. to their lovers, first of all. And, and they don't, and they really don't intend you to like memorize that and then tell your friends that all the time. Like I've heard people do that where they're like, well, who's going to do that? Who's going to do this? And, it's like, <laughs> and if you, if you don't have that realization, like if, if, and of course you don't have it, but if the realization is not clear and you're speaking that way, you're, you're, you're selling yourself a bill of goods. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to authenticity is so important with this. So, um, so yeah, I, I think as long as the, as long as you, uh, you clearly see and feel that the relative and absolute are not two things. You function in both simultaneously, and the deep realization starts to be that becomes very obvious. So, for me to talk about um, how to inquire is also talking about the fact that there is no one inquiring. That to me, it's the, literally the same thing. In fact, the way I describe inquiry in the book, it's kind of on a continuum because as you continue to inquire, let's say little aspects of the self fall away here and there and there. And at some point, you could say that inquiry just keeps going, there's just no one doing it. So right now I could say this is just inquiry. It's absolute fascination with this, this formless, distanceless, yet exquisitely intimate knowing of its own self, but there's no one outside knowing it. The, 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 the knowingness is the, the experience of it. And it's magical and it's wonderful. And there's, a, there's an innocence to it and there's a mystery. And innocence and mystery means it's kind of like inquiry, right? It's not, there's no need for an answer. There's no need for a solution. There are solutions and answers and startings and endings and beginnings and endings. They're all the same thing. It's all in this. And yet there's, a, there's an endless fascination with it. That's yeah. the non-dual stare you see people <laughs> just staring right into infinity. That's awesome. So the, the way I would describe this is the relative and absolute really are not two things, although they do seem like it at first. And as, as things clarify, you start to realize, you know, they're not two. The, the other thing I can say that's really interesting um, about this is there's a very well-known and revered Zen master named Dogen. He has this famous thing called the Shobo Genzo, and he's so clear. His pointing is so clear. It's wonderful. Very poetic and direct and you know, precise. And yet he, he, at the very beginning of the, um, I think it's the, I think it's the Shobo Genzo or one of his other writings, but he explicitly says this exact issue there. He says, the Dharma is, the, the Dharma is perfect and stain, it's unstained. Nothing can, nothing can tarnish it. Nothing can touch it. That's reality. You know, he's saying who, who could imagine a way to wipe that clean? It's impossible. And then he says, and yet the Buddha had to, you know, go meditate for six years. And, you know, so he names these sort of patriarchs and says, they had to practice. Why do you think you're any different? Mm. So it's like that. And what he's saying is the relative is the absolute. And you're selling yourself a bill of goods. If you're like, I know I literally will do nothing and just know that I'm enlightened. Okay. Well, if that's working for you, great. <laughs> but if you're lying to yourself, like, you know, maybe do some work. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, completely. Angela, what, what's your, uh, sort of backstory? How did, and once again, language might trip me up a little bit, but what, how did you so-called wake up? What happened? So yeah, I was uh, 24 <clears throat> years old. And for me, um, 
it, I, I actually grew up really, really, really miserable internally. Like the older I got, the worse it was. And it wasn't really due to external circumstances. Also, there were some challenges in life and stuff, but it, this was way beyond any anything that you could look at in my storyline and go, yeah, I could see why you're suffering. Mm. It was very intense. And the more thoughts there were, the more it, my mind felt like a pressure cooker. So I, I, it actually took me a long time after awakening to realize that many people feel pretty stable in, in thoughts. Um, it, it can even be comforting, but for me, it wasn't. It was really brutal. And the feeling of being enclosed in thoughts, being a, a someone trying to take their identity from thought mm-hmm. and then build it out of thought. And yet there was something that just felt so wrong about it. Um, so probably from the time I was like in my mid teens to when I woke up, it just felt like a pressure cooker that just got worse and worse. And it was up here. And I knew it had something to do with thoughts. I didn't know exactly what it was, but the worst part is I felt like I had to solve it through thoughts and through belief and understanding. And that actually made it worse. So it was kind of like painting myself into a corner and it just got worse and worse. Um, and I never perceived, um, a message that clearly told me there's a, there's literally a way out of this, a very real way out of this. I never perceived that explicitly. I don't think until pretty much right before awakening somewhere I had, I had heard about Buddhism. I was interested in, I had read some stuff. I'd had a couple classes and I'd heard about enlightenment, but it, it was, it was immediately put into that conceptual framework. And it felt like that concept, it felt like stuff in that conceptual framework about, oh, there's this thing that can happen called enlightenment, but it probably takes lifetimes. And maybe someone on earth has figured it out, but probably not many. It just didn't, it just, I, I just, it just felt like more of the same in a sense. Um, and then, and then one day, I think, as I wrote in the book, um, a professor, no, this was actually a couple of years before the awakening. So I did get a taste of this earlier, but I kind of forgot about it for a while. But there was a professor who was giving a lecture on Buddhism, and he was a guest lecturer in one of my classes in college. And he, he essentially was pointing out what enlightenment is. But then he started talking about it as if it could happen right now. Like it's something, this is what it's like to go through it. And this happens. And, and it, suddenly I could tell he was talking about it as an actuality now, not, as, not, not something theoretical. Essentially, I felt that he was transmitting it like he had had something happen to him. But all I know is it almost felt like a tunnel, like something just opened up. Everything got really quiet, truly. And I don't have mystical experiences, really. So it was very obviously different than usual for me. But I remember everything got quiet and like I felt very, very intense presence, which I had never really felt before. Um, and I stopped him. I don't even remember exactly what he was saying when I said this, but I stopped him and I said, this thing you're talking about, is this possible? Is this, does this actually happen? And he stopped and he, he like looked right at me and he said, there is no doubt. And he locked my eyes for like a couple seconds. And I could tell right there, he, I was like, oh, he's, he knows I know something. He knows I picked up what he just said and he's making sh- damn sure that I know it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, and I could feel it, you know? And it was like, whew. And it was so out of context with the normal place that I existed in my mind of like struggle, suffering thoughts mm-hmm. that I, I, I just was there for a bit. And then I kind of forgot about it. But then I would think about it on occasion, like whatever I need to do, I need to figure that out. But then the thought would just go away. It was, it was like an opening came and then it closed back down and then it opened a little bit here and there. Um, and then there were a couple experiences that happened over the next few years. Um, one thing is I had learned to meditate. So in meditation, I could get into some deep states of peace. And that was really, really helpful because I just suffered so much, but it was not the kind of insight he was transmitting it, that, that I didn't taste again until 
shortly before awakening. And something just hit me. I don't know what it was, but a couple of weeks before the awakening, um, part of it was like a breakup with somebody and there was like emotional stuff and a, a release of that. But something just really said, I'm going to do this now. Like I'm going to find a way through this suffering because for me, it was so bad. I'm like, I would kill myself, but some, it was really strange because something in me knew, even if I did that, I would come back around to this. I don't know how I knew that because I didn't really overtly believe in reincarnation necessarily. I just didn't know, but something said, that's not even the solution. You need a solution that's better than that kind of, kind of deal. But I, but more importantly, I could feel it. And it was coming from not in me. It was clearly not me. It was something way beyond me. And, um, I started reading, I picked up this book called three pillars of Zen, which I had laying around. Someone had bought me or I had it for a class or something for you know, a couple of years. I had never even opened it. And I looked into the chapter on awakening stories, enlightenment stories, I think it's called. And there, there's some Westerners in there and a couple of Japanese people. Um, and they literally go through and tell what it's like to go through Ken Cho. And I was like, whoa, this is beyond anything I've ever met anyone talking about. Like I've never met anyone that tells me this is possible. Nothing like this. And this, and and this is absolutely what I'm looking for. Like I will not go through this life feeling this bad until I, you know, dig so far into this that something happens. And I read all of those stories and I was just blown away. And I could I could just feel it. I could feel what they were tuning into. And something in me just said, I'm letting go. Like I have to give myself fully to this, fully. And I did it. I could. I couldn't do it 24 seven because my mind was too loud, but I did it every time it came to me. I just let go into that, that presence that was, is more than, it was like, a, it's like a presence, but it's something literally dissolving my identity. I don't know how to describe this, but it, I feel it now. Like it's, it's, it's incredible. Mm. Um, and I knew it was beyond me and I knew it was a force more powerful than me completely beyond me. Um, and, but I was willing to give myself to it, to just literally let go into it because I could see at this moment, everything else I had done to try to make myself feel better in life just never worked. It just never worked maybe for a short time. Mm -hmm. And I also could sense that all of the learnings I had, you know, picked up about what you should do to make yourself a good, happy person. And all those things didn't work for me. And, and it worked for, it seemed to work for other people, which kind of made it worse. But, but at this, I was like, oh, this, this is talking directly to me. This is what I'm here for. <laughs> There's no other reason to be in this life except for this, because all this suffering is bullshit, right? So, um, so yeah, I just dug into that. I, I, in a very instinctual way, I can't even tell you the process exactly. Although I, I kind of talk about it in my videos with self-inquiry, at least the first part of this, um, was, was very much about finding, um, finding the root of thought, seeing that every single impression moving through the mind was nothing but a thought even the labels, even the sense of me, all of it was just thought, thought, thought. Mm. And by seeing that, I, I was able to just allow identity to just calm down enough to, to just sort of shift it into the whole space of self-knowing, which I might call being or pure consciousness, which is everything I'd ever thought about. Everything I'd ever thought about, perceived, the goods, the bads, the inside, the outside, the self, the other, all of that was made out of the same stuff, consciousness. Everything I had ever perceived about the world was nothing but this substance of consciousness and I could rest in it. And it felt really good. Mm -hmm. it, it felt very neutral. It felt like I wasn't struggling at all. There was no struggle here because the struggle is a thought that appears here and then dissolves back into here. So it was that kind of a thing, very oceanic. Once I discovered that, um, I thought I'll stay here. I'll just do this when I'm not working or 
taking care of other responsibilities, I will return here for the rest of my life, if nothing mm-hmm. else, and even if nothing else happens. So it's interesting because I wasn't looking for something beyond that. It was just finally respite. And again, it wasn't super blissful or mind blowing or super mystical. It was neutral, but it was contentless. Mm-hmm. It was contentless and it felt okay. Finally, it's the first time I ever really felt okay as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did, it did have a tendency to deepen as, as I just kind of coalesced into it. And, and, and then, um, then it started shifting in ways that are even go beyond that description. It's very hard to talk about. Uh, but over a few days to a couple of weeks, like, like identity structures just started dropping away. And then it came to a whole different kind of place where um, I, I think I might've said this in the book or I've said it in other interviews, but that first kind of shift, which happened one night when I discovered this unbound consciousness, the shift was, I am the unbound consciousness, but I didn't have to say that or label it. It just mm-hmm. was obvious. That's the key. It was experientially obvious and self-validating. Mm-hmm. So that was definitely a shift in identity. That's, that's an awakening. And it was wonderful. It was so peaceful. But then it actually did go beyond that. <laughs> it's kind of like the structure of experiencing itself, the structure of perception itself, the, the structure of sight, sound, all of it literally deconstructed itself. And it didn't mean it, it didn't turn into nothingness. I want to be clear. It didn't turn into like some background awareness or a, it, did, it wasn't like that. It's not like that. It t- turned into the most intimate, incredibly impossible to talk about paradoxical thing, non-thing, experience, experienceless experience that's always here, literally always here. It's here before the body comes into being. It's here when the body goes out of being. It doesn't matter. It's not even contingent upon life and death. And that was the home. I don't know how else to say it, but it was so obvious that, oh, this is the way it, it was like a memory. Oh, I remember this. This is everything. This is the whole universe. This is where there is no universe. It's all just this so simple. Um, but I also knew, man, I, there's no way I could talk about this. There's no way I could ever describe this to anyone. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. And, and also strangely through that, you see everything is completely okay, including suffering. Absolutely. So, so I could look out into the world. If I see suffering, I could feel it as suffering. And I could also feel it as okayness simultaneously, my own and everyone else's. So there really was no impetus to talk about it. There was no impetus, certainly no impetus to teach it or write about it. It, it. it was so strange. It literally never crossed my mind to go talk about this, which sounds odd now when I look out and I see like people journaling their whole process as they're waking up on YouTube and all, which is great. It's awesome. But it just didn't even cross my mind to do that uh, for years, actually. In fact, I was kind of averse to it because I could see how easily it can confuse people. You can, you can easily, you know, err towards the side of the absolute or err towards the side of the relative and just confuse people. Mm. Um, so I never, I had a deep respect for the process. And of course I lived it and I do, I always live it. Um, but, um, but isn't what, there's nothing to say about it. And, and again, when I say I live it and all that, these are, these are practical designations. These are conventional terms that I use. There's no way to talk about it, but there's no self in it. And the key, the, the key insight to that, that second massive shift was no self. That was the key. There, there's absolutely no self here. There's no self anywhere. There's no here. And everything I had ever perceived was rooted in self, but I couldn't see that. But even the, the subtlest paradigms of self, like <clears throat> view, frame of reference, the tendency to form any view at all was all based in an illusion. <clears throat> and when that illusion's gone, the world looks very, very different. 
and everything looks different. Every it's, it feels different. Um, magical, alive, uh, ineffable, but not special mm. and not distant and not apart. And it's not, and I don't look at other people going, they don't have what I have. It's nothing like that. Mm. It's sort of a, it's sort of a field of energy, but again, there's just no good descriptions yeah, yeah. for this, but it's everyone's true nature. So if someone's like listening to this, fascinated by it, you absolutely can know this. You can wake up to this, but you're going to go through a lot. I promise you that. Yeah. And, and I think it's fair to say that it's a, it's a destructive process. It's not really an additive one. You don't sort of add things into you. It's more of like the onion metaphor. It's like you're just shedding everything. Uh, yes, where, I, go, please. I, I want to add one thing to that, but then I'll um, uh, go on. Um, it, it is largely so, but I will say it's only a destructive process from the standpoint of the self. But for a long time, you'll feel like you're dying, you're dying, a lot of grief, like that stuff tends to come a lot. But, but ultimately, it's very clear there's nothing to, to destroy. There's nothing to destroy. Mm. In fact, it's, man, it's so hard to talk about it. But um, I might say it's more like it ultimately is really about clear seeing. It's not about getting rid of an ego or a self. It's not about getting rid of anything because there's nothing to get rid of. It's not about acquiring something for sure it's much more just about seeing very, very clearly what's actually going on. Yeah. Yeah. So people who um, may be suffering with, I don't know, severe anxiety or something like that. Um, and the reason I, I've, I've listened to someone say this, they've said this message seems like um, a get out clause. It seems like it's just a way to dismiss our trauma and our psychological issues um, what would you say to someone who suggests that? Well, so uh, when I, when I speak in this way, or when I speak about this message, let's say, mm. um, I always make a disclaimer. I try to make a disclaimer that I'm not making a philosophical statement and I'm not making a prescriptive statement. So mm. again, I don't, I don't assign the need to do this to anyone at all. It's totally up to the individual. Um, so I kind of already make the assumption someone is interested in waking up when I start talking about this. So I would say if somebody has severe anxiety uh, and depression, et cetera, um, you know, I don't prescribe this as a cure for it. I wouldn't, I would not say it that way because then you can be bypassing and so forth. Mm. Um, but it, it is really kind of heartbreaking because I see so much anxiety and depression out there and I know the root of it. I mean, I just know the root of it. I, I it, the root of it is the sense of the separate self suffering, but that doesn't mean that everybody can, can wake up and just yeah. get rid of it. Like it doesn't work like that. So, um, what I would say to somebody who feels that feels that anxiety, the clinical diagnosis of anxiety, depression, um, you know, PTSD, like a lot of these intense, um, experiences internally is if you feel like what I'm talking about resonates with you, then then don't worry so much about the anxiety and the depression and so forth as far as treating it directly. Do whatever feels practical. Take the medicine, do therapy, all that stuff's fine. Like I'm, I wouldn't say not to, but, um, but give, give your heart to this. Give your attention and focus to this, at least in part of your life, and you will not be disappointed. You know, um, because for me, I had super anxiety. Like it was, it was so bad. And um, I know clearly what it is now. I know why it feels that way. I know why that, I know what that anxiety is. And it's also relational. Like we, we, we pick it up from others and we, we transmit it to others and we share it and we kind of go into complicity and different things. Um, but, uh, 
So, so that's, that's the message of somebody who's, who has it, who has anxiety, has depression. Yeah. If, if, mm-hmm. if this stuff doesn't make sense to you, then that's, that's fine. There are good therapies, you know, do, do therapy, find a good therapist. Um, uh, you know, emotion work is always helpful with all that stuff, but is the spiritual process that I'm talking about, the awakening process completely about bypassing, just like pretending it's not there. No, it's definitely not. In fact, it's not. So there is a um, a tendency that humans have, and some humans have it a lot more than others to dissociate. I, I'll just, it's a very broad term, but I'll call it just dissociation. There are people do it with drugs, certain drugs. Um, uh, they do it. Uh, sometimes they're just really good at dissociating. They just do it almost naturally, like a depersonalization uh, state, a derealization state. Um, and honestly, everyone's a little dissociated. That's mind identified in my view, because the mind identified state is a little bit dissociated from life, but it's a very stable and very um, socially um, endorsed state of somewhat dissociated from life. And, and so everyone can have this tendency at some time or another. So uh, I would say if somebody has a strong tendency to dissociate, they should be really careful with doing this process without doing a lot of important, like a lot of good emotion work and really investigating their beliefs. And if you think you need therapy, do therapy um, and being really practical, like work on your relationships, do th- make sure you're not using this to become a jerk. As I said in my book, like I have some chapter or section in there. It's like, don't be a jerk. Um, so don't decouple this from your responsibilities of being a human. I, there's no need to do that. Um, you, you can, you can work on awakening and, and, and inquire and, um, you know, listen to non-duality videos, whatever really works for you. You can work on all of that at the same time, you know, don't try to apply that to your relationship and tell your partner they're asleep. And that's why they're mad at you. No, they might be mad at you because you're being a jerk or whatever. Right. So be humble about that. And, and don't try to, you, you, the way you avoid bypassing is just don't bypass, (laughs) just pay attention to what's important in life and don't try to use this to escape from it. This is not an escape from life. If anything, it's an escape into reality. Now, it does come in phases. So I'm giving it an overarching uh, description here, but at different times throughout the process, you'll have more of a tendency to dissociate. And sometimes you'll have more of a tendency to, to sort of um, distract yourself um, or just abandon the, 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 the path altogether. And, and, you know, these can be dealt with on an individual basis by a teacher or someone you're working with or whatever, or your own insight. But overall, we tend to be kind of uh, dissociative as humans and mind identification is literally dissociating from life. It's the sense of being apart from life, apart from the physical world in a way that makes us feel fundamentally isolated. With the realization of non-duality specifically, the boundaries disappear. They, they, they were never there. There's not an experience of objects in space. There's not even really an experience of space. It's just, it's just a sort of soup of intimacy, sort of, mm. for lack of a better way of saying it. From there, it's, you, it's very hard to bypass because you're so interconnected with everything and you realize everything is interconnected. And if you pull a string here, it pulls a string over there. So when you act like a jerk to somebody, you feel, their, you feel the pain you just caused them as your mm. own pain. So it gets a lot harder to bypass later. But, um, but again, if you have a tendency to, to dissociate, um, to not take care of your responsibilities and so forth, you should be more careful about that earlier on, um, yeah. I would say. Mm. And you mentioned authenticity a couple of times earlier. I think that sort of bleeds into what you just said there in terms of owning everything that's coming up and completely taking responsibility for everything. Um, 
what to you, there's a, a big, particularly Western philosophy, uh, without trying to go too much into concepts, there's a big thing around authenticity. And when I uh, experientially for me, how I perceive authenticity is different to what Western philosophy considers authenticity. So what, what if I said to you, what do you think authenticity is? What, what would you say? You know, it's, it's, it's such a simple thing that it's hard, you know, it's it, authenticity to you is only specific to you. That's the key. It, mm. It's like being really, really honest about your motivations. So part of authenticity is willing to be willing to recognize your own selfishness because it's true. We're, we're kind of wired for it. We're wired to be somewhat selfish or sometimes really selfish and just knowing that. Right. So one example I give is um, a lot of times early in Buddhism, Buddhist practice, they'll chant, I'm not chant, but they'll recite the like Bodhisattva vows, which is like, I vow to liberate all beings and, you know, that's great later on, but early on, it's like, that can really set up an inauthenticity in you. That's not what you're doing. You, you want to, you want to not suffer. Like, you got to be honest with yourself at some point. Like mm-hmm. I'm here to not suffer. That's why, I, you know, I, I'm meditating. That's why I came to the Buddhist temple. I'm telling myself these lofty things, but truthfully, man, I just suffer a lot and I don't want to, and I don't understand why. And you may believe that understanding is going to get you out of it, but at some level you're, you're trying to fix something in yourself and being clear about that and understanding that will get you so much farther, so much faster early on than just believing this thing about yourself. Because once you believe this thing about yourself, Oh, I'm a aspiring bodhisattva or something. You know, the problem with that is then there's, there's cognitive dissonance when information comes to the contrary, then you, 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 you can actually conveniently overlook when you're actually acting selfish instead of just realizing, Oh, okay, that's a selfish behavior or that's a selfish impulse or whatever, which is totally fine. But when we bypass, then we start to, instead of using spirituality or using awake, the awakening process to um, dissolve identities or strip away identities, we use it to like add another layer of identity, <laughs> another layer of inauthenticity on top of all of it, right? Mm. So that's what I mean by authenticity. And, and it's something you get better at, I think. It's like mm. a muscle you flex. Mm. At first, it might be really awkward if someone just stands right in front of you and says, what's your deepest truth right now? What's important to you? You might be like, oh, uh, you know, trying to figure out what am I supposed to say based on social conditioning here? That's not authenticity, that's social conditioning. But, you know, you might utter something out awkwardly, but the next time you, you try to speak authentically, it's, it's a little more clear. And then you start speaking more and more authentically. And what I find is the more authentically you communicate, the more vulnerably you communicate, the more it starts to feel like an outflow of love. Mm-hmm. The more you actually see what's in front of your face and you can actually appreciate people for who they are and their, their pain and their suffering. If you, if you feel like you want to push people away a lot um, because you don't want to feel their suffering and so forth, often what it really is, is you're, you're not wanting to feel your own suffering, <laughs> mm. you know, um, when, when, and be vulnerable and be, and be honest and be unguarded and be raw. When you're willing to do all that, all of a sudden you just feel so connected to people and to life. You know, you, you see, gosh, the fragility is right in front of my face. This person is just trying their best to do everything, you know, do what they can in life and, and they can care and they hurt. And, you know, you start really feeling that, that connection. So in the practical sense, authenticity is a, is a wonderful thing to practice, but you kind of do have to practice it and remind mm-hmm. yourself because I think we're socially conditioned to, in a sense to not be authentic. Yeah. Yeah. The social conditioning would tell us don't be authentic. Uh, go with the flow, do what you think you're supposed to do, say what you think you're supposed to say. Mm-hmm. So um, there's uh, like in a chemical reaction, there's a little bit of an activation energy. You got to get over the hump before the authenticity really starts to take off. Mm. Uh, but, but the more, the more you open that channel, I think of authenticity, 
um, the more, for me, it just feels like an outflow of love instead of being stuck in here trying to figure out what to do and what to say and how to relate or how to manage life. It's like, oh no, it actually just flows outward. Um, Nisargadatta has a beautiful quote. It's in my world, love is the only law. I don't ask for it. I give it. It is very powerful. Yeah. Unconditional love is like a, a very, very powerful river flowing outward into the world. Hmm. Um, and you don't need to get anything out of it, but, but you, you, you really experience in the, in a, relative way in the relative sense of being a person yeah. you really experience connection that way i think so yeah yeah i think i've heard i heard the phrase growing up uh i'm not from a religious background by any sense but i heard the word god is love that's what i heard mm. and it took until i had to drink ayahuasca to actually understand what that was uh what mm. that meant at the time uh, i don't mm. think the person who said it to me actually understood either to be honest i think they were just repeating what they'd read yeah um but it took psychedelics uh, in order to open that up to me uh, and then the energy constricts again and then it might open back up and it seems it seems in my experience that i have expansive times and then constricted times and there's patterns that seem to form whereby i'll i'll fall back into habits and then the habits will then open up uh, as as con if you like but consciousness expands again and then the habits will fall away and then they'll constrict and then they'll be back and, and I'll run this pattern. Um, and it's took me probably five years to actually understand, ah, I'm actually doing that. And now mm. I need to go into where this is coming from and where mm -hmm. this is stemming from, you know? Yeah. You know, the contraction expansion thing's interesting. It's one way of saying what, what um, a real realization is, would be that there's a natural integration and disintegration that's always happening inexperience it, it, again non-dual experience so every there's, there's nothing really ever fully formed but there's there's a seeming coming into appearance and there's a seeming disappearing out of appearance all the time so it's like a almost like a balance between the masculine and feminine or the integrative and disintegrative movements let's say and the human feels that for sure we feel it in our body mind but when there's a sense of a self in there it's it's always trying to manage it it's trying to expand when it when the contractions happening naturally and it's trying to contract when expansions happening naturally so it's always kind of going against the grain a little bit because it thinks it has to manage something and so it's always going to get it a little bit backwards it seems like it that, that's the struggle feel so um so I, I would say yeah i mean just notice the more you clearly see oh yeah there are energetic expansions there are energetic contractions and they're fine it's when it's clear they're not happening to anyone that, that they're just experiential they're energetic mm -hmm. then um, it's really no problem at all. It becomes quite enjoyable. But when we're fighting it through belief, through habit force of uh, avoidance and so forth, um, it can be really uncomfortable, which mm -hmm. is actually a good thing. That discomfort is what keeps pointing our attention back. Look closer. What's your belief here? What is mm -hmm. your belief about the contraction? What is your belief about the whatever? You know. Mm. Yeah. Identification with that. So identification with the uh, thought forms would you perceive that to be the root of all suffering that that, that automatic separation based on the identification with the thinkingness i would say so that's a good way of saying it yeah mm -hmm. right okay because there, there because but even that it can get broken down into like subtler aspects so i would say probably the most fundamental movement of separate self that I can find um, uh, would be something called like inherent view or forming a frame of reference. And this isn't an opinion. This isn't like the level of 
conscious opinion. This is literally like how you're looking out at the world or the, even the subtle sense that you, there's someone here looking out at the world. There's someone here managing anything. And that very, very fundamental sense is probably a neurologic process. I mean, it's just an impression the mind makes. It takes a picture of reality, which you can't actually take a picture of reality, but, you, but the, the mind's version of reality adds something that's not there. It adds solidity. It adds progression. Progression meaning there's something moving from moment to moment, mm -hmm. that something stays continuous from moment to moment instead of moments appearing out of nowhere. Um, so it adds progression and solidity. And, and then it also adds this, the potential to compare that to the next image of the mind. So it's like the mind takes snapshots and starts patchworking them together. And inherent in the snapshot is the sense that there's something that took the snapshot, like a subjectivity, a sense of being a, a subject to objects, to objects of experience. And that is, th those two are like really intimately tied together. Um, and they're really innocent in and of themselves. Like a baby probably starts doing this at about 14 to 16 months, having some fundamental sense of self apart. It, it knows it's a self. It can mm. recognize itself in a mirror. There's like the mirror test and these different things. There's some really interesting developmental psychology tests too that they can do to see when a child has a sense of self, uh, a sense of agency. Yeah. Um, and it really does come online. Like a 12 month old almost never has one. And by 14 months, many do. By 16 to 18 months, almost every child has a sense of agency. They, they realize I'm an agent in the world acting upon the world. Mm. So these are sort of developmental milestones as well. But when you go back through them, you, and you literally go back through them, one side effect is you feel all the, the sort of emotional challenges of those times of, of, of life. And part of you won't want to do this because you're like, I don't want to feel the fundamental sense of the absolute terror of being abandoned as a child. Like you don't want to feel that you've covered it up with identities, but you actually go back and feel it. It's really strange. Um, and often it just feels like an intense emotional experience or grief or something, but you literally come back to that fundamental place where um, the mind suddenly develop the ability to perceive itself. It's the most simple sense of self there is. It's very fundamental. And somehow it just goes beyond that. And then you see, oh my God, even that was never happening. Um, and uh, from there, it's very strange because thoughts can still occur, but they're, they're, there's, nothing, there's nothing to whom those thoughts are occurring. There's no one suffering from belief. There can even be beliefs, but there's no one who's holding those beliefs. There's no one who's pushing or pulling on thoughts or perceptions or the external world. There's, that's just not there at all. It never has been. Um, so, so yeah, going back to those very fundamental movements of self, you actually do get reasonably familiar with what self is or the illusion of self is and how it functions. Um, but at that level, I'm not sure suffering really comes in yet. Suffering really comes when, when we start to struggle in a heavy way, a lot of reaction, mm. um, probably later childhood and so forth. In early adulthood, it's becoming more solidified for sure. Um, and we feel like someone in here, quite certainly struggling against everything out there. And, and the fundamental belief that's based on of separation will always cause some sense of isolation to that internal per that seeming internal person that's where suffering comes from but that very fundamental sense of just a reflection in the mind probably that happens to, to toddlers before they have a sense of self doesn't seem to cause suffering in and of itself it's more once the 
standing wave of subjectivity and objectivity in the world has developed itself and you, you're already feeling like a thinking adult, um, that's when those fundamental mistakes, misperceptions of separation become magnified in really intense ways. And they can even turn into violence. I mean, this is the root of all violence, ultimately, mm. is, a, is a sense of separation um, and then a sense of uh, a sort of um, dissociation into the mind where the world starts looking so distant and external, you start becoming numb. And if you've had intense, you know, violent conditioning in your life, then you may act that out unconsciously, not, not knowingly necessarily, but unconsciously. Um, so, so I think the, the fundamental misperceptions become a monster at some point, can become a monster once they're amplified into the mind, you know, year after year after year, thought after thought after thought. Um, and uh, yeah, that's suffering. That's suffering. And, and as these, uh, as the layers of the onion are shed, how important do you think a teacher is or a guide or something? Because uh, th- th- there's a guy called UG Krishnamurti. I'm not sure if, you, if you're aware of him. He's pretty, pretty brutal. And uh, he is very anti-teacher. He says, no, we, we don't need anything like that. You know, just it's spontaneous, blah, blah, blah. Uh, would you suggest that that isn't a practical solution if there is a solution? Yeah. Yeah, so the, I, I want to say a, a thing about this um, that's a little bit more broad, and it refers to some of these other kinds of questions about teacher or no teacher, practice or no practice, um, and that is that when I'm talking to somebody, let's say, and they're they're going through this process, and whatever the interaction is, it's different every time. I don't have a process or like a specific recipe, but what I'm actually reacting to is the sense of fixation. Some somewhere in there, there's a certain fixation. So. One thing you could say about reality, unfiltered reality, is it does not fixate. And that is so wonderful. That's, that's the freedom of it. In the Heart Sutra, there's a line that says, freed of delusive hindrance. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, but because of the way our, I guess, our minds are set up, we basically have an ability to fixate anywhere. You can fixate in the masculine, you can fixate in the feminine, you can fixate in doership, you can fixate in non-doership, you can do it any which way. So, um, so what I kind of look at is, how's that individual moving? So with some individuals, I might actually recommend like you maybe develop a relationship with a teacher or somebody who can hold you accountable with other people. I actually say the opposite. I'm like, you got to let go of this idea of the teacher. You got to let go of this attachment to, to the authority figure and, and so forth. So it really depends in my opinion on how that person's fixating. Now, if someone has a very extreme view, like absolutely never, never teachers, you know, they're the, the scourge of realization and stuff. <laughs> I, I might say, well, they might be a little fixated somewhere in there, but, but they have a good point. And that is, you know, the guru worship thing and weird teachers and cult leaders have really taken, given a bad taste to spirituality for a lot of people who are smart, practical, logical, maybe even atheist, scientific. Mm-hmm. That's why they think spirituality is just nonsense because there's so many weird teachers around and stuff. So, so there, that's a really important critique, I think. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you have no one to, I, I've seen people also get fixated the other way in a big way where they have a lot of knowledge, they read a lot of books, but their teachers are all dead. But you don't, you don't have a live teacher because a live teacher is going to challenge you on your bullshit. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what you don't want. Right. So people can fixate that way as well. Like kind of taking yourself for a ride. Um, one, a Zen teacher once told me, it's kind of like if you're in court in the United States, they have this saying, if you represent yourself, the, 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 the person who represents themselves in court has a fool for a client. 
And so what they're saying is like, don't do that, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I've heard that about teachers too. And I don't think that's always the case, but you, you got to have some, you know, uh, insight about that with yourself. If you're the kind of person that can avoid things uh, through not making yourself accountable to another person, like you may actually benefit from some form of a teacher. Mm. Um, now, whether you need a ongoing, formal, intense relationship with a teacher or not, the, I can't say, I just can't answer that. It really depends on the individual. Um, it can be very beneficial if your teacher's authentic. If your teacher's truly authentic in the ways I wrote in the book, they don't want anything from you. They might want you to pay for a session on Zoom or something because that's mm -hmm. how they make a living, whatever. But they're not trying to get all your money. They're not trying to, you don't feel like they're trying to buy you into some mindset or way of being. They're not weird when you go talk to another teacher and try to make you feel guilty because they're attached to you. Like if you feel any of that stuff, forget it with this. You, a teacher who's empty of self, who, who really, you can tell they do it for the love of, of speaking the truth and transmitting it, but they really don't want anything from you. That's really important. That kind of teacher does benefit you for sure. Um, it can be harder to be around a person like that, even if you have a lot of intense connection with them. Mm. Um, but it is not necessary. There's so many good resources now online. You, you know, there's so many videos you can turn on YouTube and watch, you know, all kinds of, you can watch Tony Parsons and Adi Shanti and Eckhart Tolle and Muji, whoever, whoever you resonate with, and they're good, good pointers. They transmit clearly. Um, and that, that can be very helpful too. So, so with most of the, of, of, uh, the aspects of this, it really depends on the person. And I don't think there's an exact right answer, but if you feel inclined to get, to have a teacher, I would say, yes, just vet them well and make sure you don't, you don't put your realization in their hands. So you still need to do the work, whether it's inquiry, whether it's the work of surrender of just sitting there and feeling everything that comes through and not distracting yourself or running from it. Um, you still got to do that work. You can't put that on the teacher. So is that helpful? Mm. It is helpful. Thank you. And yeah. just le bleeding into uh, like consciousness maps and like uh, David Hawkins's map of consciousness and uh, spiral dynamics and things like that. Uh, in your book, you, you said, uh, just get the thing. Uh, you caution people about them saying they can be helpful in the right context, but often hinder more than help. Uh, a quote Overemphasis on maps, stages, patterns, and knowledge about awakening and realization can be used to avoid awakening. Can you expand a little bit? Yeah. Um, I'll say this. Uh, in my experience of working with people going through the process, it's, it's a reasonably masculine thing to do this, to get really obsessed with maps and logic and knowledge and precision uh, the more feminine aspect typically doesn't care about that generally from what I've seen. And, and I think, and, and that doesn't mean male and female necessarily, although it tends to fall along, along those lines, but there are men who move very much in the feminine and there are women who move very much in the masculine in this way. Um, but I would say people who move in the feminine actually wake up faster, especially in early stage realization because they can just let go. Yeah. And the first part of this, the, the first big shift identity really is letting go of your mind identification, your thought and concept identification, which can co-opt anything. The ego, to personify it, can co-opt anything, especially information. It loves information, right? So, um, so you've got to feel into it yourself. Uh, now, with that said, I, I don't, the maps you mentioned, I actually don't know. And I, I haven't, okay. there's tons of them out there that I don't know about. Yeah. But I have read some 
that I, I like don't get, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how deep this person's realization is. It just doesn't, it doesn't resonate. I've read some that are so freaking clear that it's like, this person knows exactly what they're talking about. Yeah. And, and it's awesome. Um, so there's one specific I'll tell you about. Um, it's called, you can, you can Google it. It's called thusness, T-U-H-S-N-E-S, T-H-U-S-N-E-S-S. Um, and he also went by passerby, but it's seven stages of enlightenment. You can find this on like awakening to reality blog. Um, it's really good. It's a very, very good map. It's the, it's, if I was going to recommend a map, I would recommend that map. (laughs) Um, and, but again, you know, the person who wrote it even cautions that like, this is my experience. Don't paste my experience on yourself, learn from it and see the kind of contemplations he did and stuff. So, so there are some very good maps out there. But even then, you can memorize that whole thing and, and not really let go and not, not cross over with that first awakening. Um, so again, it's so important that the letting go part is so important. The, the direct experience of consciousness of the pure sense of I at first is important. And I know that sounds contradictory with no self, but the pure sense of beingness that's not, <clears throat> excuse me, not contingent upon any thought is very important at first. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, that's the thing. And, and you know, I can't give very specific advice, but if you're reading map after map after map and trying to relate them together and that you're, you're probably more in your mind about this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I do get people on occasion who will be like, in this map, they said this, in this stage, in this consciousness, does that equate to this? And what I often want to say is, what does that matter to you? If it does equate to that, what does that do for you right now? If that doesn't equate to that, what does that do for you right now? Do you want to learn terms or you want to wake up? You know what I mean? That's what, that's what matters. Now, there are, again, very good pointers, um, uh, Nagarjuna, um, Dogen, and they do have some sort of maps, give or take. And, and, and so those can be helpful later on, for sure, in deeper stage realization to clarify things and stuff. But even then, 95% of this is really is quote unquote practice, which can also just be just sitting there in presence, which can also just be feeling, hearing, seeing, tasting, and nothing else. Um, but that part of it has to be there. If you, if you just keep reading, learning and understanding and assimilating knowledge, it, you know, it, it just doesn't, it can really trip you up. Mm. Mm. You know, from your standpoint, Angelo, is there a, a wantingness to make the world a better place? Nope. Just a, just a complete un- uh, neutrality about everything it, it's paradoxical i mean mm. i do care um yeah there, there's a quote in my book um, by david hume to the universe the value of a human is no more than the value of an oyster yeah as bad as that sounds from the human perspective i experience that directly so mm. no, nothing is more important than anything else no, no object like there aren't even objects so everything is infinitely significant is, is, is one way of saying it actually but it, again, it's a paradox because it's also insignificant. And that goes for everything and everyone. Um, so one of the most challenging places people can get stuck with this in, in deeper realization is they really want to hold on to their humanness. And it makes sense. Of course it does. We're human, right? Of course it matters to be human and we should be better humans and all that. All that has its place. But if you're really holding on to that paradigm, you're, you're not willing to let go of an, of an illusion. And that because the self is an illusion, this isn't a statement of philosophy. It's a direct experience. So if you're holding on to that, 
you're really struggling with a very powerful force. <laughs> and um, that, can be a, uh, that can be a major challenge uh, for, for some people, not everybody. Some people move through no self easily. And I don't know if it has to do with being a Buddhist background or what it is, but um, that can be a real heavy, heavy fixation for people later on. Mm. Uh, from my experience as well, there was a, uh, with certain movements of energy, I have a, a sense of complete meaninglessness. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just like uh, I've run a couple of businesses and whatever, and it's like I'm in the middle of a negotiation, and I'm like, this really mm -hmm. is completely pointless exercise. Mm -hmm. And it actually helps, actually, in negotiation yes. standpoints. It's it's a benefit much rather mm -hmm. than it's a hindrance. Yeah, um, yeah, it's exactly. You see things as they are, mm. and when you see things as they are, you realize that significance, importance judgment those are of the mind they're of the they ultimately roll it back to the self and it turns out that it actually works out just fine um you you probably notice in those deals that the fact that you don't have a you know dog in the fight so much you, you can move through it so much more fluidly and present you can see all sides of things usually or, or at least better mm -hmm. and and the answers come life is quite ingenious like it knows what to do and that's what i found so that even though it can sound cold or callous that in some sense, I don't really care how anything goes because I don't. Um, at the same time, I trust life so much that I don't have to worry about how things go. So I can, so I, all your, all your faculties are available to be right here. That's a, that's the huge gift. It's a huge gift. Um, and um, you don't love people less. You love people more. You actually see them. You feel every part of them, you know, mm -hmm. whereas before you only felt the parts that, you want to feel <laughs> and you want to not feel the parts that you don't want to feel that reflect stuff in you that you don't want to feel when that's gone, you know, it, it really is unconditional love because you can let everything be as it is and you can let everyone be as they are. And in the practical sense, the human body will still function as it needs to. It's still going to eat. It's still going to protect itself from physical harm in, in case that actually comes up and it does it seamlessly. It's just that there's no identity around it. There's no struggle around it. And no value system it's just natural and a sense that's complete freedom mm -hmm. rather than you know the freedom we sort of see in the world where it's like oh we need freedom and it's mm -hmm. like no freedom's there yeah yeah yep and, absolutely and we, we end up in political debates and philosophical debates and stuff and it's mm -hmm. just like it's, this is just masking a screen here mm -hmm. that's a the sense i get and like the, you mentioned i asked a question about the the state of the world and making it a better place and everything. And then uh, the analogy that Rupert Spearer often uses is the, the, the cinema screen. And then the, the, it's just plain on the cinema screen. Mm -hmm. um, it's very easy to, to even conceptualize that if, if you're very mind driven, that's a very easy metaphor to grasp onto, but it seems that uh, unless there has been some sort of trigger point in your life, if, if that's suffering or whether that's a, a teacher or something, that there is no uh, will of anybody to walk this path. Would you suggest that it, it's like um, a non-event or it does there need to be some seekingness from the, 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 the self, I suppose I'm trying to, I'm mm -hmm. breaking separate self here, but does there need to be a, a, a like, yes, I'm going to go for it or is it just a happening? I suppose it depends where you're asking the question from. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. It does. It comes to almost to that feminine, masculine aspect. Like 
people who move very much in the feminine, they don't feel like they're doing something to make it happen. They feel like someone finally gave them permission to just let go or give them permission to, to follow their deepest instinct, which isn't a seeking. It's just a, it's an attunement. Um, to the masculine mind, it, it's uh, at first feels like often, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm doing this. Like I'm on, I'm all in, I'm on board. To me, me. Yeah. it's fine. Like to me, either way is fine. That's just how you're, that, mm. you, it's just Buddha nature acting mm. that way. It's mm. totally mm. fine. So when someone says, oh, you shouldn't do this, or you shouldn't, you shouldn't seek or you should seek or you should, don't worry about the shoulds and shouldn'ts. Do what feels natural to you. And it's totally okay. The, the sense of, you'll, at some point, it'll be very clear what seeking was all along. It's a kind of like a side effect. It's a mental side effect of, of this processless process unfolding in eternity, un unfolding in nowhereness, mm. whatever. It's the mind trying to make sense of things. It doesn't matter. It's, mm. not, it's not happening to anyone. So, um, so I, I don't discourage people from what feels natural to them generally. I just try to redirect it one way or another to clear seeing right here, right now. And when there's clear seeing right here, right now, with no labels, no judgments, no pushing or pulling, then what's right in front of your face isn't even solid. It didn't come from somewhere. It's not going anywhere. It's not a part. It's not in space. It's not distant. It's not at a distance. Like that, the, the what realization's in front of our face. Reality's in front of our face. It's wonderful. So wonderful. Um, so, so I think what I do without really planning it is I just kind of meet people where they are and say, yeah, that's fine. Because in the relative aspect, this is what's happening and, and relative and absolute, same thing. So I don't care if you're seeking or feel like you're going to get somewhere. It's fine. Let's get somewhere. And then, then somehow we just start vibing. And then all of a sudden we're, we're looking at what's actually happening right now. What is seeking? Huh? I don't know. It's one thought. It's one thought that says, oh, later I'm going to get something. You know? Oh, wow. Where's that one thought? Oh, shit. It's right here. Does it point anywhere else? I don't think so. What's it made out of? I can't even tell what it's made out of. There's nothing there. Wow. Interesting. And then the sounds get a little louder. Wow. What is that? When I drop the label sound, what is that? Where is that? <laughs> you know, it's, it's it, it, so anything can lead you right directly into reality. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, very well said. Yeah. And you're in a, uh, I'm going to butcher the word, but anesthesiologist mm -hmm. in your, in your work life. Mm -hmm. uh, is there any reason you sort of did that? Because that, in my mind, that sort of creates a, a consciousness type, you know, dynamic. Mm -hmm. Did you choose that on purpose or did you just, is that just fell into yeah, I don't. I don't know. It's a good question. I, I thought about that before. Maybe I've just always been fascinated with like states of consciousness or something. Um, but the, the field is nice. It's got a lot of critical care procedures. Mm -hmm. um, now there's not, there's not really clinic. You don't really have clinic visits. It's more like in the hospital and go home and you're done. It's you know, uh, you're, you can't, you're not always, but you can't be busy when you're there, but when you go home, you just, you're home, you know, you don't have to do notes and things like that. So yeah. I think it just fit my personality. Um, and, and I enjoy it. Yeah. Mm. But it is interesting because like consciousness, the word, it can be used so many different ways. Right. And when that's why I define it very specifically, if I use it a certain way, I say why I'm using it that way and how I'm using it that way. But if I'm talking about a patient becoming conscious after anesthesia, it's a different, totally different version of consciousness. I'm referring to the ability to protect your airway, the ability to recall information and communicate and stuff. So, mm. Mm. yeah. Uh, just before we wrap up, I'd like to quote something. You said, uh, sometimes I have to speak very directly and tell you the truth that every way that you can imagine making yourself feel better. 
through any type of practice, understanding, even insights, is ultimately going to be used by the sense of separate self. It's an outgrowth of the fear of helplessness. Mm -hmm. That was from a recent video of yours. Now, that helplessness there, an outgrowth of the fear of helplessness, uh, is that purely stemming from that sense of separateness? Mm. Yeah, so the, the sense of helplessness... So, so the same, I'll say it this way, the same phenomenon that we're calling helplessness looks so incredibly divergent, looks so different from the lens of a self and from the lens of reality, which is not a lens, but the lens of reality, helplessness is simply the way it is. Help, there's, there's helpless because there's nothing apart to act upon anything. There's no agency. There's no separation. So that kind of helplessness is truly freedom. It's it's just, it's, it's, it's seamless with reality, but to the, the self, it's like the last place it wants to look. It doesn't want to look and see that because everything it thinks it can get, everything it thinks it can do turns out to be an illusion. Once you really, really drop into that helplessness and it can be an emotional helplessness at times. People go through that all the time where they just feel so frustrated. Then they just feel helpless or feel helpless to feel deep emotion. And so there's periods of emotional and, and kind of personal helplessness that come throughout this process here and there. But when it comes down to like really deep helplessness, it's like, oh, there's absolutely no way to change anything in the way I'm perceiving it as an agent apart from everything to change it, to make myself feel better. It's almost like if you just go through that in your mind clearly and over and over again, it just becomes so clear that identity, you see there's no identity in it. It's very mm. strange. The thought can still be there. Um, the, the sense of helplessness could still be there, but there's no one it's happening to. There's no one it's occurring to. So helplessness is almost like the mysterious past between self and no self or something. Mm. Um, but it, it's, it can be just absolutely the most accursed experience to a mind-identified person, right? Mm. From the standpoint of, self it's just how this is and it's not just fine it's thoroughly enjoyable by knowing mm. and those emotions angelo that we all feel uh some teachers like again suggest no completely disregard them complete waste of time don't mean anything and you seem to suggest when you write that uh you said it's not necessary the most important silent aspect of the realization process, however, if it's not addressed, if it's not addressed properly, it can be the biggest sticking point, especially in the later stages of realization. I think that's definitely the case. And this just comes from experience. When I see people who wake up very quickly, I did an interview recently with Yen on my channel. She's a physician in um, uh, Malaysia, and she woke up relatively quickly uh, um, to 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 non-dual realization to no self-realization liberation uh it took her a, i think a couple of years but th her description of it um kind of explains why and she emphasized again and again she's like it was really really hard to go through it was really really hard like emotionally um and her acknowledgement of it her willingness to sit with those those intense emotions when they came um and not try to bypass it and pretend they're not there like that is largely why that went fast for her i think and i've worked with other people who when it goes pretty quickly they're, they're willing to do the insight inquiries. Sure, it's great to, to like look into who am I? Um, what is move? You know, whatever inquiry you're, you're interested in, what is a thought? What is consciousness? What is sound? 
all that stuff's great. Insight investigation is important. But if you're trying to do that to actually avoid the, the emotion lurking in the background and you just need a good cry for five minutes, man, it, it really sets you up for, for distracting yourself and confusing yourself about what's actually going on mm. because we are physiologic entities that respond to the environment. So I would say even with liberation, it's not like there are no emotions, but there's not a background emotional um, tone all the time of like dread or fear that's that mm. stuff's gone mm. uh, but you can definitely feel sadness like if if um, your pet dies you'll feel sadness now you may not even call it sadness but it will be a physiologic response there's no story to it it's not you don't dread it and then you don't drag it on for days weeks months years but it's it's intense and it will move through like you do respond to the environment mm. um, and the people i know that that have gone through this would i think generally say that's true um but the afflictive emotions like guilt and shame and resentment and the, the, the muddy emotions where you're not even sure what you're feeling, you're kind of pushing it away, but you're kind of feeling it. It's kind of there all the time. You don't know what to do with it. That's what goes away. And that's nice. You know? Um, uh, yeah. 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 And I think uh, culture, uh, Western culture in particular, we sort of have a bad habit of just completely suppressing everything. Uh, particularly the men around in the UK, we do, we just suppress absolutely everything um, mm -hmm. until one day it seems to boil over and, and yeah, you know, toxic masculinity, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Happens in the, happens in the United States too, for sure. Yeah. yeah a, there was a general, I think it's maybe improving somewhat, but there was definitely a generation of men starting around, I don't know, world war two or to in the seventies, eighties, nineties. I don't know, but I think the younger guys now are more, a little more sensitive, more, willing to feel emotion, talk about emotion, display emotion, which is good. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Yep. Angelo, I've loved speaking to you. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, it was nice speaking to you. Your, your videos, you, you pump out a lot of content out there, but it's, and it's very, very good stuff as well. So uh, thank you for that work. It's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, again, thanks for having me. And it was uh, nice meeting you. And I just want to say one thing because I was, kind of teasing about Tony Parsons and stuff at the beginning of this video. Mm. I really have nothing against that type of message. And it's, it's actually quite valuable. If anyone listening to this hasn't seen that kind of stuff, check it out. Like it's really a powerful transmission and I love what they do. So. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Angelo, thank you. Speak soon. Have a good one. Yeah. Bye. -bye. Thanks. Bye.